Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 25, Domination, Rebellion, Domination, Part 1. Now, I'd like to start this episode by thanking this month's new Patreon supporters, Miroslav Paskov and Sal Verani. Thanks so much, Miroslav and Sal. You guys are making a really big difference in how easy it is for me to make this podcast. For everyone else, consider pledging on Patreon to help this podcast keep going and improve. The pledges I've gotten so far have already started making a real difference in the finances of the project. So really a huge thanks to everyone who's supporting it. Okay, so welcome back to the regular narrative. Now that we've caught up with the last several centuries of the First Bulgarian Empire and its ultimate collapse, it's now time to cover the 167 years during which Bulgaria existed only as a Byzantine province and as an idea in the minds of some of the people who would want to see it reborn. My big question for this period was, how should I cover it? I'm going to cover, the way I ultimately decided to do it, is to cover the major events which occurred in Byzantine history during this period with a more focus on how those events impacted Bulgaria. So something that happened way far in the east, I'm probably not going to talk about as much, but something that happened on, you know, kind of former Bulgarian territory, I'm going to talk about that a bit more. So first, getting into it, to take a bit of a broader view, I want us to remind ourselves that In spite of a few very nearly triumphal moments, Bulgaria has always been just another neighbor to the Byzantines. True, they have been, as I put in a previous episode, the best of friends and the worst of enemies, but Bulgaria seems to have only ever stood a chance when Byzantium was weak. In that sense, Bulgaria was tremendously lucky to have had a few centuries to establish itself shortly after the Byzantines faced the tremendous power of the armies of Islam for the first time. During its life, the First Bulgarian Empire could always know that eventually another Arab invasion would take the pressure off. After all, Bulgaria may have faced enemies on nearly every border, but those enemies were nothing compared to the strength of the Islamic caliphates far away to the southeast. But by the early 11th century, things had changed. Byzantium was ascendant. Their armies were winning on the battlefields, their economy was booming, their finances were well managed, and the entire empire had around 18 million subjects, a huge tax base. Without Arab pressure in the east, Bulgaria simply had no way to resist the strength of that kind of a state. But why? Well, as we've seen time and time again, even when the Bulgarians win a massive victory, The Byzantines can just hide safely behind the walls of Constantinople, safe from a killing blow. In the meantime, an empire with those kinds of resources can almost always just raise another army or bribe an enemy tribe far away to attack Bulgaria from behind. So if the first Bulgarian empire probably never stood a chance, what were the alternatives? Could the empires have lived peacefully together? Well, probably not. Most of the territory Bulgaria occupied had been part of the Roman and Byzantine empires for centuries. 
The Byzantines weren't likely to simply accept permanent Bulgarian occupation and bury the hatchet and make peace under those circumstances. They couldn't. Historical claims, claims of universal empire, and the dangers of Bulgarian armies, even the benefits of a Danubian frontier, well, these factors always came together to ensure that peace never lasted long. Plus, for a Byzantine emperor, few things would look better than defeating a state the empire had been at war with on and off for centuries. So that brings us back to Basil II, the Bulgar Slayer. Now, that name has an interesting ring to it. Considering Basil's absolute brutality in conquering Bulgaria, was actually followed by extremely generous terms once Bulgaria had been conquered. Somehow, the man who blinded an entire army was very shortly afterwards more than willing to welcome the Bulgarian aristocracy into the Byzantine world. In this sense, Basil was really more pro-Byzantine than he was anti-Bulgarian. He knew that lenient policies, generous policies, towards the defeated people would be good for his empire. Plus, once Bulgaria was defeated, he still had to establish beneficial relationships with the Serbs and the Croats. Best to show brutality in war and gentility and mercy in peace. Because, well, that's a combination that's very easy to make peace with. Plus, by this time, the Bulgarians were no longer the horse-riding pagan barbarians that they were when the established, sorry, they weren't those people anymore, they were now sort of an established Christian people of Europe. That meant that when the Bulgarians were conquered, also there were rules to follow. You couldn't just do whatever you wanted with them. So, all right, getting us back to more of the narrative. After the final surrender of the last Bulgarian holdouts, Basil continued to conquer the Serbs and make the Croatian rulers which Samuil had installed as vassals, his vassals. He gave them titles and prestige, just as he had done with Bulgarian aristocrats. In essence, Basil sought to create continuity. Allies of Bulgaria became his allies. Subjects of Bulgaria, his subjects. It was as simple as that. He even continued the same tax policies in Bulgarian lands, taking payments in kind instead of cash, which was far easier for Bulgarians as their economy did not have a lot of cash in it. Really, one imagines that life for the average person in Bulgaria, a that for them, sort of a Byzantine peace felt like a Bulgarian peace would have. Not a whole lot changed after the final Bulgarian state collapsed. One exception with this, however, lay with the church. Ever since the 9th century conquests of the area between the Balkan Mountains and the Danube, after the defeat of the Rus, when Samuil then consolidated his lands in Macedonia to the west, Ever since this time, the Byzantines eliminated the autonomy of the Bulgarian Patriarchate, instead installing a metropolitan subject to the Patriarch of Constantinople. In many ways then, in spite of his leniency elsewhere, Basil's conquest fulfilled the greatest fears of the Bulgarian boyars, the fears they'd been raising for centuries, that the church and its Byzantine culture would make its influence felt and help kind of overwhelm Bulgarian culture and independence. So, taking a general look at how Basil sought to control the conquered Byzantine Bulgarian territories, it was by working closely with local elites, getting them on his side, and generally maintaining local power structures and practices as much as was possible. 
Alongside this, Byzantine garrisons in many fortresses throughout the country and the presence of large garrisons in nearby cities like Philippopolis and Adrianople helped remind anyone who might be thinking about rebelling that they shouldn't stand a chance. Making a note about Byzantine maps and administrative divisions, a kind of separate note here, following the conquest of Bulgaria, you'll notice that the regions of Bulgaria encompasses the territories of some wheel, which is centered around Skopje and Ohrid, and not the center of the old countries between the Balkan Mountains and the Danube. So you'll be able to see this map on the website. And a quick note, I know the website has not been updated in ages because when Martin left the project, I was working on it alone. Didn't really know how to use WordPress. It, I spent hours trying to make it work. Finally, a good friend of mine helped me work with it. And so now, website's working again. I'm going to be updating it regularly, doing a lot of work now. So <laughs> minor tangent from the, the story, but everything is good there. So you can check and see what the Byzantine divisions were. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a really great explanation for why some wheels lands were called Bulgaria and not the rest of the former country, um, except that, you know, these were the final Bulgarian campaigns, the final conquered, final conquered Bulgarian lands. And so the other lands uh, that used to compromise, comprise the kind of central territory of Bulgaria were usually called something like the lands beside the Danube. In part, this actually corresponds to the Byzantine psychology of the conquest. They didn't see this as a conquest of the Bulgarians as a people. They saw it more as the reestablishment of the Byzantine Empire's proper borders by way of the destruction of an empire which had grown within those proper borders. The people of these conquered lands were now Byzantine subjects, just like so many others in the empire. All right, so th that covers a lot of the general information about how Bulgaria was governed after its conquest. So now let's jump into what exactly happened after those last Bulgarian fortresses and armies surrendered. After his conquest of Bulgaria and other successes, Basil enjoyed triumphs, first one in Athens in 1018, and finally the main one in Constantinople itself in 1019. There, he entered the city through the Golden Gate with a procession of Bulgarian nobles and the wife of the last Tsar. Following this, Basil engaged in campaigns against the Khazars and the Georgians before finally dying in 1025. He was succeeded by his younger brother Constantine VII as he had had no children himself. But just two years into the rule of the new emperor, conflict between the Rus and the Pechenegs had caused the Rus to increase their fortifications, leading the Pechenegs to look elsewhere for raid and plunder. This was going to cause a problem. Because in 1027, elsewhere was the Bulgarian lands between the Danube and the Balkan Mountains. And so the Pechenegs swept down just as the Bulgarians had once. And their raids would continue again and again between 1032 and 1036, with terrible suffering coming to the Bulgarian populations from the Danube all the way to Greece. In the meantime, Constantine VII had also managed to die in 1028, leaving the empire to his daughter Zoe, and her husband, Romanos III. He would only reign for six years before he died, and Zoe would then marry again, making Michael IV another new emperor in such a short time. Anyways, with these raids, these Pechenig raids, the Byzantines really faced a choice. Now, historian Paul Stevenson outlined this really well in his book, Byzantium's Balkan Frontiers. 
In essence, with the Pechenik raids devastating Bulgarian, now Byzantine lands, the empire knew it would be far easier to defend itself if it withdrew its borders to the Balkan mountains and simply guarded those passes instead of trying to defend the entire Danube River. However, Stevenson points out that there were three problems with this idea. First, the empire certainly couldn't handle the shame of abandoning its new subjects and conquests. Second, as I mentioned, there was a really strong feeling that the Danube was the empire's natural frontier, and that to abandon it, again, would be a really great shame for the empire. Finally, there was a real fear that if allowed, the Pechenegs might very well do exactly what the Bulgarians had done centuries before, settle between the Balkan mountains and the Danube, and build yet another rival state. Having so recently defeated the Bulgarians, it's clear the Byzantines really were not in any way willing to take a chance with that happening again. So instead, the empire took the following tactic. They abandoned some towns that were destroyed by the Pechenegs, and instead decided to focus on a smaller number of more heavily fortified settlements. Think about what happened in Western Europe following the collapse of the Roman Empire in the beginning of the so-called Dark Ages. Now, this policy was actually incredibly significant for Bulgaria, because it brought more and more wilderness into lands that had previously been settled. Now, think of the scorched earth policies used by the Russian Empire against Napoleon or by the Soviet Union against Hitler. This is something similar, though obviously on a smaller scale. Between the Danube and the Balkan Mountains, there were going to be no rich settlements, no easy plunder, no great farms to produce food. It would be centuries before these lands would be significantly settled or cultivated again. But what it meant is that when those Pechenik raiders came through this territory, there was nothing for them to steal. There's hardly anything for them to eat. So it basically just discouraged them. It meant that if the Pechenigs wanted to have a successful raid, it's going to be harder. They're going to have to travel even deeper into Byzantine territory. So ultimately, this actually worked pretty well. Though still, in the 1040s, some Pechenegs did actually settle around the Danube in the vicinity of Preslav, but this really didn't do very much to change the status quo. They definitely didn't, obviously, start a great new empire like the Bulgarians had done. But still, within a few fortified settlements which remained, the economic benefits of belonging to the Byzantine Empire were really beginning to be felt as the 11th century wore on. Coins were now becoming more common, and goods from elsewhere in the empire, like olive oil and wine, were also becoming much, much more widely traded. This trade expanded on the Danube as other goods from as far away as the Rus made their way down and into Bulgaria. Still, in spite of this new economic prosperity, the successors of Basil II reversed his lenient policies and began to introduce tax payments for, for taxation. Now, cash may have been more common in Bulgarian lands at this point, but the general economic boom the Byzantine Empire was experiencing meant that actually there were cash shortages throughout the empire. And so it made it very difficult for Bulgarians to pay their taxes and fed a lot of widespread resentment. In 1040, in response to the poor management and policies, military skills, everything really, of Michael IV, as well as in response to the Hellenization, the sort of Greek-ishness, Increasing in the Bulgarian Orthodox Church, both the Serbs and the Bulgarians in the West, more in the former territories of some wheels control, 
rose up in rebellion. The uprising was led by a man named Peter Delian. Now, Peter claimed that he was actually the son of the former Tsar Gavriel Radomir and the grandson of Samuel. This claim relied on a story that he was actually the product of Gavriel Radomir's unhappy marriage to the sister of the King of Hungary. In this version of events, following his father's murder by his cousin, this boy Peter was a captive in Constantinople before escaping to his mother's native Hungary. However, many doubt this claim because, honestly, it would have been very strange for Ivan Vladislav to have murdered his father and left this boy alive. Why would he? He was a rival claimant to the throne. So, this is it's likely the case that Peter was actually more of a clever opportunist. That he just sort of made this claim, made up this story, so that he could have the you know, prestige and, and be able to claim legitimacy as a new Tsar of Bulgaria in his uprising. So in any case, he proclaimed himself Tsar Peter II in Belgrade after he, his forces captured that city. Soon, Nish and Skopje were also under rebel control. Peter then joined forces with the Bulgarian ruler of Dyrrhachium, Tichomir, and as the rebels grew in strength, they moved south towards Thessalonica. There, the Byzantine emperor Michael IV was waiting for them. At the Battle of Thessalonica, about which we don't have many details, the armies met and the Bulgarians were actually victorious, which really speaks about the military prowess of Michael that he couldn't defeat these sort of rebels rising up out of next to nothing. So after this disastrous battle, the emperor fled, leaving his treasury and his personal tent in the hands of Mikhail Ivach, son of the famous General Ivach, who had fought for some wheel. Mikhail Ivach handed this treasure over to Peter as part of his triumphant victory in this battle. Now, the Bulgarians were ready to lay siege to Thessalonica. As their great victory brought further Slav rebellions against the Byzantines in northern Greece and Albania. Now, almost all of Samuel's old state was in full rebellion. However, it was at this moment that a newcomer arrived in Peter's army. Ivan Vladislav's son, Alusian, who had been a Byzantine noble, but had somehow or another become disgraced left the Byzantines and come to offer his aid. True, Lucian's father had murdered the man Peter claimed to be his father, but he was welcomed nonetheless. In fact, Lucian was put in charge of that very siege of Thessalonica with 40,000 men under his command. But instead of laying a siege, he decided to immediately attack the walls without even giving his troops a chance to rest. The result was a catastrophic defeat and the death of around 15,000 Bulgarian troops. Alusian fled the fight and the rest of his army, which escaped separately. At this point, we can probably understand that Alusian was getting desperate. He clearly felt that he had made himself unwelcome in both Byzantine and Bulgarian circles. Yet, somehow he was still allowed back into Peter's circle, even in spite of his kind of foolish losses. But all this sort of led to a night in 1041 when, while Peter was drunk following a feast, Alusian snuck up and slit his nose and cut out his eyes with a knife. Then, knowing the situation was getting even more desperate for him, for all of them, the Bulgarians actually proclaimed Alusian their new emperor. He was, after all, from the family of Samuel, and they weren't about to let their entire rebellion go to waste just because of this horrific act 
but Lucian was having none of it. Fearing for his life, he fled instead to the Byzantines where he was welcomed with land and titles for his brutal, horrible deed. Now, Emperor Michael knew it was time to strike. So he headed out at the head of his army to defeat the Bulgarians again, once and for all. Now, the Bulgarians were led by the blind and shamed Tsar Peter II, but they were determined to continue to resist. The forces met near Lake Ostrovo in northern Greece, and the Bulgarians were soundly defeated again. Again, we don't have many details of the battle, but we do have a few possibilities about the fate of Peter. Now, it's possible that he was killed in battle by none other than Norway's famous King Harald Hardrada, who had failed to take the English throne in the battles for the throne won by William the Conqueror in 1066. Yes, that King Harald. He was at this time in Byzantine service as a member of the famed Varangian Guard, the personal bodyguards of the emperor, and some of the most feared warriors in the world. It's also possible that Peter was captured and executed in Constantinople, or that he was just exiled to a monastery. But in any case, his death, or exile, and the defeat at the Battle of Ostrovo meant the end of the rebellion and the return of Byzantine rule to Bulgarian lands. Within a year, Emperor Michael faced his own problems, and in spite of leaving the throne to become a monk, he himself was blinded, castrated, and killed. Now, the Byzantine Empire was ruled by co-empresses and sisters, Zoe and Theodora, and later as well with uh, sort of Constantine IX, who was married to Theodora. And it was during their era that a new enemy came from the east to fight the Byzantines in Armenia. <clears throat> Now, at first, the Seljuk Turks, a brand of the larger group of Turkic people who had fought and actually pushed the Pechenegs into the Balkans to raid Bulgaria just a few years prior, so these Seljuk Turks are affecting things north and south of the Black Sea, they're, they're starting to make their presence felt. Their entrance onto the Byzantine stage here actually marks the beginning of a mighty new emperor to the east, which is going to replace the Arab states, which had been fighting with the Byzantines for centuries. The first battle in 1046 may have actually been a Byzantine victory, but that hardly stopped the expansion of the Seljuks. Also during these same years, tax immunities and feudal contracts began to really weaken the Byzantine state and prepare the transition from the empire's golden years to another period of chaos as we get further into the 11th century. I mean, just hearing these transition from one emperor to another, you can probably get the sense that the stability that emperors like Basil II brought was slowly leaving the Byzantine world. All right, so I'm going to end this episode here with the Bulgarian rebellion destroyed and the Byzantines facing terrific new challenges in the east, west, and within. Next time, we're going to continue to discuss what happened in Bulgarian lands and the Byzantine Empire including the beginning of the Crusades, as well as the move towards the establishment of a second empire for the Bulgarians. So this episode is written by me, Eric Halsey. It's produced by Lance Nelson, and the theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. As always, like us on Facebook. I always post things here, give you guys updates, post some articles every once in a while. And as always, please give us a review on iTunes. It makes a big difference for helping people quickly and easily find the podcast. You can listen to us with, you know, an app. You can listen to us at SoundCloud. Check us out wherever you listen to podcasts. Lastly, if you want to hear more about Bulgaria today, check out the Bulgaria Now podcast created by Lance Nelson and frequently co-hosted by me. So that's it for today. 
In the meantime, uspech, or in English, good luck. <laughs>